You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Well, if you have your copy of the scriptures with you, please turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. As we've worked our way through the first four chapters of Daniel, I've been challenged in many ways. And I've been surprised how directly this ancient text speaks so clearly into so much of what's presently happening in our world. As we begin this morning, I want to mention just one example of this. So far, the book of Daniel has cataloged the rule of one king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, one aspect of what we've encountered in the text thus far is God's assessment of this Babylonian king. What Nebuchadnezzar thought of himself or what we might think of him really doesn't matter. What matters ultimately and supremely is what God thinks. Only his assessment is infallible. Friends, as we consider what's happening in our world right now, everywhere we turn, someone is telling us what we can and can't say and what we can't or must think Amidst all the chaos and confusion, I want to remind you that there is great freedom and comfort in being tethered to the word of God. What God says about something or someone is absolutely trustworthy and it's of eternal importance. The word of God should shape your worldview from the ground up You should watch what's happening in the world and immediately ask, what does God's word have to say about this? What does God think? And then how can I think biblically and Christianly about all that's happening? Brothers and sisters, this is why when we come here week after week, the person standing behind this pulpit doesn't share his opinions with you. You see, that's not our job. In this sense, you don't need to hear from us. You need to hear from God. You need to hear from God so your thoughts about the world and everything in the world will align with his thoughts. So I want you to keep this in mind as we continue our study through Daniel. How is God through this study aiming to shape your understanding of who he is and how you should understand this world that he has created. Daniel chapter 5 introduces us to a new king. And like we did with Nebuchadnezzar, we will find out what God's assessment of this new king is. In Daniel chapter 5, we behold the God who judges. The new king is King Belshazzar, and he will be at the center of this entire chapter. In fact, all 31 verses are simply the explanation of one dramatic scene from the life of this king. So if you're a child here and you love drawing pictures of what you hear in the sermon, you're going to have fun this morning. This event does not come 
immediately after what took place in chapter 4, there there were actually four other kings after Nebuchadnezzar before the reign of Belshazzar. Well, from the organization of the book of Daniel, it seems clear that we're meant to compare the events of chapter 4 with the events of chapter 5. And in so doing, we'll learn some valuable lessons. But more importantly, we will all come face to face with the righteous judgment and the just wrath of a holy God against sin. Friends, King Belshazzar should serve as a warning to us. So I want to look at this chapter in four parts, and here they are. A mocking king, a divine interruption, a faithful servant, and a just punishment. Let me give those to you again. A mocking king, a divine interruption, a faithful servant, and a just punishment. First, look with me at a mocking king in verses 1 through 4. Beginning in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. When they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, why would I say a mocking king? Why would I say a mocking king? Is the simple act of throwing a party that causes... Uh, all this commotion, is, is that in and of itself reason enough to refer to Belshazzar as a mocking king? Well, no. Look, look at the text again. I want to show you something. Look at verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, what does the text say? He commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. Then look at verse three again. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And then verse four, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Friends, clearly the inspired author wants us to note the the particular vessels that were used in this unrestrained party. There's a clear emphasis on that in the text. Verses 2 and 3 specifically mention that these are the vessels that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Now Belshazzar, if you think about it, he was a, he was a wealthy king. He lacked nothing. So why, why does he ask for these cups to be brought to this party? Sinclair Ferguson explains, and please listen carefully. He writes, as he drank, the alcohol began to depress the restraining element in his mental powers. The caged monster of his heart was released. We can almost hear his boastful spirit calling out to some of the servants, doubtless 
to the horror of some present at the table. Get those Jewish holy cups here and we'll drink a toast to those parasites too. What explanation is there for his action? After all, the Jews posed no threat to him or his empire. There is only one proper explanation. The Jews and their sacred vessels symbolize the presence and power of God. Belshazzar's heart was a factory of rebellion against God. Now he cast off restraint and he showed it. Friends, this is a picture of unbridled pride and blatant disregard for God. Belshazzar called for vessels that had been consecrated to God for use in God's temple by God's people, and he filled them with his wine, and he and his friends became drunk and then praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. You see, this is no mere oversight in judgment. But this is an open and willful act of arrogant rebellion against the one true God, the very God who had given Belshazzar his throne and allowed him to rule a kingdom at all. And Daniel will make all of this clear in his response to Belshazzar in verses 17 through 28. But for a moment, just consider this act by this pagan king. As I was thinking about what the text describes here, there's one New Testament text that immediately came to mind when I considered this audacious act by Belshazzar. In fact, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. The problems in Romans 1 stem from a failure to acknowledge the creator God. This is precisely the failure that we see in Belshazzar. Look at Romans 1 verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, friends, with that in mind, flip back to Daniel chapter 5 and, and notice the parallel. Notice what Daniel says to the king in verse 22. In the previous verse, the prophet explains exactly how God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. And now look at verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, and Nebuchadnezzar was not actually Belshazzar's father, but this is a way of referring to an ancestor. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. This is why I'm referring to Belshazzar as a mocking king. God wants us to know through this text that Belshazzar's actions are an unadulterated attempt to mock the God of Israel. Here's the thing, Belshazzar is fully aware of how God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. 
what does Daniel say again? You knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Friends, this is a frightening text. It's a frightening text, especially when you realize that you and I are capable of the same kind of willful sin. King Belshazzar is confronted with the truth of Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. As Belshazzar mocks God and defames the vessels ripped from the temple, God unexpectedly and dramatically shows up to this party. This brings us to the second part of this unfolding scene, a mocking king. Now there is a divine interruption. Look with me at verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Imagine knowingly mocking God, a God who you know has judged past kings with severity. And while you're thumbing your nose at this God, Human fingers appear out of nowhere. Not a whole person. Just the fingers of a human hand. Now these fingers are not the result of having had too much to drink. This is not a drunken hallucination. This is a divine interruption. This is an act of God. After the fingers appear, they begin to write in the plaster of the wall. And even though Belshazzar has no idea what the message means, he is terrified, as you would expect. What we find next in the text is presented with a bit of irony. The king who was mocking God is now being mocked by the biblical author. Notice how Belshazzar is described. Verse 6, his color changed. His own thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. In fact, one translation says the joints of his hips were loosened. I won't illustrate that for you. And then it says his knees knocked together. Now we... We understand that this king has just witnessed human fingers appear out of nowhere and begin writing on a wall, but here's what the text wants us to conclude about Belshazzar. He's a pansy. He's scared to death. God's awesome actions have turned this mighty king into Barney Fife. Verse 7. 
That's the picture we have. And it's yet another picture, isn't it, of the futility of earthly power. A king who thinks he's really something because he can throw a party and even impress his friends by dragging out these Jewish vessels that were stolen from the temple. Well, he's now brought to nothing when he encounters the true king. And David Helm makes an interesting observation exposing the depth of this king's pride and delusion. When Daniel appears on the scene, which we'll see in just a moment, Belshazzar interacts with him like he still has power and authority. Helm writes about verses 13 through 16. The impotent one attempts to command his tongue in ways that suggest a continuing claim to control. But this king is nothing more than a street drunk in a Halloween costume. He is only a pretender to power, stammering out promises to Daniel of bling and a shawl and a share of his power. Friends, don't don't dismiss the contrast here between an earthly king and the heavenly king. Before calling for Daniel, Belshazzar does exactly what we saw Nebuchadnezzar do before him. He calls for the the wise men of his kingdom, and and guess what? There are no surprises here. Verse 8, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Belshazzar then turns yet another color in verse 9, and he doesn't know what to do. Verses 10 through 12 reveal a woman in the kingdom who remembers Daniel and how God used him in the past. And so Belshazzar calls Daniel and we come to the third part of this story. A mocking king, a divine interruption, and now a faithful servant. A faithful servant. And Daniel is summoned before the king and the king says in verse 16, something I already alluded to in the quote from David Helm, but look at the text with me. Verse 16, but I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. I love the scene. At this point, Daniel is an older man, maybe 70 or 80. And there is a, there's a matter of factness about him at this point in his life. Notice how he responds to Belshazzar's offer of wealth and power. He's enticing Daniel. But look at verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. This is not the first time Daniel has been offered wealth and power, is it? But something happened a long time ago. A decision was made 
before this moment, standing in the presence of Belshazzar, Daniel had decided that he would not live for worldly pleasure and man's praise. Brothers and sisters, this kind of faith is what we read about in Hebrews 11. Daniel was offered something that would bring immediate enjoyment and pleasure, but but his heart had been captured by something better. And every indication we have from the text is that Daniel's faith, though tested, was revealed over and over again to be unflinching. I think it would be very appropriate to apply what was said about Moses in Hebrews 11 as a means of illustration. To apply what was said about Moses in Hebrews 11 to Daniel. So I want you to listen to Hebrews 11 verses 24 through 26, but adapted to Daniel as a means of illustrating my point here. By faith, Daniel, when he was taken into captivity, refused to bow to the pressure of the pagan kings and refused to be drawn away by the promise of worldly goods and man's praise, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Babylon. For he was looking to the reward. Friends, in addition to being challenged by Daniel's unshakable faith in God, we also see something of the fruit of what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. I want you you to understand this. While while sin, while sin is an ever-present reality this side of heaven, no saint here, no matter what age, has reached a point where they can say sin is no longer an issue. There's no struggle anymore. No one can say that. But, but don't forget that faith does grow stronger and deeper. As you feast on the promises of God, they will taste sweeter. They will become more satisfying. It should be no surprise to us that Daniel, who is known for his commitment to prayer, is also revealed to us to be a man of deep faith. These two things work together. If you want your heart to become more satisfied in God, then commune with him often. No one, no one accidentally becomes a man or a woman of unwavering faith in God. Hebrews 11 faith is forged in the furnace of affliction and is further developed through prayer and prolonged exposure to the word of God. Now there's one more observation I want to offer about this faithful servant before moving on. I sense in Daniel's response, not only an unwavering faith in God, but a genuine disgust for the sinful actions of Belshazzar. 
Remember, Daniel felt compassion toward Nebuchadnezzar. So we know that that Daniel is not some Bible-thumping legalist who, who just hates sinners because they aren't as holy as he is. No, friends, for the one who loves God and loves his neighbor, there are still times when it's right to be deeply bothered by someone's arrogant and flippant rejection of God. That's not legalism, that's holy disgust. Look at verse 18. Daniel confronts Belshazzar. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed and whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he raised up, and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Let me just note three very brief observations from those six verses. First, Daniel again affirms God's absolute sovereignty over every aspect of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Verses 18 and 19, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty, and any success he had, any respect that was given to him by other nations, all of it was from God. Perhaps this would be good for us to remember as we are tempted to put way too much confidence in elected officials and earthly rulers. Second, Daniel affirms God's hatred of pride. Verse 20, when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was filled with pride, God knocked him down and took the glory that he had given to him. Three, Daniel affirms God's righteous judgment. Verse 21, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar and he did it for his glory and for Nebuchadnezzar's good. This judgment brought Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge God's glory and majesty. Now friends, here's why Daniel retells so many of the details of God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar. 
the prophet wants Belshazzar to feel the full weight of his profound sin against God. He wants him to realize this is a big deal. Verse 22 is an incredibly sad verse. But don't miss the powerful warning for all of us. Again, and you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Belshazzar knew how God had dealt with sin in the past. He knew God hated pride. He knew God had the power to give kingdoms and take them away. He knew that God set up kings and kingdoms for his own purposes. He knew all of this, and yet he lifted himself up against the Lord of heaven. What a picture of foolishness this is. And yet, friends, you and I are capable of acting just as foolishly as this king. Every heart has the potential to be filled with just as much pride. And guess what? God will hate our pride just as much as he hates Belshazzar's. So this text offers a serious warning to all of us. But please understand that a warning like this is also an act of God's grace. Why? Because it appeals to each of us to turn away from pride and to humble ourselves. And this brings us to the final part of this sobering text, a just punishment. So we've seen a mocking king, a divine interruption, a faithful servant, and now finally a just punishment. Look with me at verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. So Daniel is interpreting the writing. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The hand was sent from the very presence of God, verse 24. This message is from God, and it's an awful message that ultimately results in the immediate death of Belshazzar and the loss of his kingdom. This message from God uses the image of weights and scales and it declares that when Belshazzar and his unrighteous kingdom are set in the divine scales of justice, they are quite simply counted, counted, found wanting, divided. That's the interpretation of God's message. 
the king who has brazenly lifted himself up against God will now be struck down. At this point, and we might find ourselves thinking back to Nebuchadnezzar, waiting for God to stay his judgment of Belshazzar, hoping that he will respond in humble repentance. But we've already read the rest of the story. But if you hadn't, maybe at this point, you would think after hearing Daniel interpret this dream, Belshazzar will be terrified. He'll fall on his face and he'll beg God for mercy. That's not what we find at all. In fact, Belshazzar's shockingly oblivious response is to exercise his kingly power. Verse 29 begins with these incredibly haughty words. Then Belshazzar gave the command. Seriously? And then he makes a proclamation that Daniel will become the third ruler of the kingdom. I I found myself wanting to yell at Belshazzar, what kingdom? What command? Didn't you hear anything Daniel just said? That was my first response. But here was my second. I began to see myself in Belshazzar. I have heard the warnings of God. I have seen his holy wrath poured out against sin. I have quoted verses about his hatred of pride. And yet I forget. Day after day, I drowned out God's voice and I turn away from his word. And in my own way, I lift myself up against him. And if I, if I, were to be put in the divine scales of justice and counted, I would be wanting as well. And if God so chose to deal with me the way he deals here with Belshazzar, he would be perfectly justified to wipe me out. But he doesn't. Right? He doesn't judge me according to my obvious pride and my continuous sin. He could, but he doesn't. Why? Well, it's not because of something in me. In fact, it has nothing to do with me. It's only because of Christ and it's all of grace. This story reminds me that God is sovereign and he hates sin. The penalty for sin is awful, but it's just. The wages of sin is death. This story reminds me that God is justified in dealing severely with sin. And that what Belshazzar received, I also deserve. But friends, this is why this story, more than anything, causes me to run again to the cross. I find myself clinging to the cross more tightly after reading and studying a text like this. Why? 
Because the cross is where my just penalty was poured out on Jesus. He got what I deserve so that I could receive what only he deserves. In Christ, I receive what I do not deserve, full forgiveness, perfect love, and eternal life. Because Jesus bore God's just wrath. Brothers and sisters, I hope this text serves as a warning. Then I hope it drives you to Christ. Then ultimately, brothers and sisters, I hope it fills our lives. It shapes us into a people marked by humility and gratitude. This is what we deserve. But because of Christ, we have received the opposite. Let's pray together.